In the Trauma-Informed Education podcast, you can get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to our Trauma-Informed PBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. That's tipbs.com. I'm your host, Dr. Kay Eyre. Today we speak with Laura Sykes from the Turnaround for Children program. Set up in New York in the wake of the events of September 11 in 2001, Turnaround for Children is a program that aims to support schools by providing tools and services to accelerate healthy student development and academic achievement in schools serving high concentrations of children impacted by adversity. Set up by Dr. Pamela Cantor, Turnaround for Children promotes clear and actionable steps that can be used by school leaders and practitioners to cultivate safe and supportive environments, strengthen relationships, and develop essential skills and mindsets. Laura Sykes joined Turnaround for Children in 2017 as the manager, Applied Science. As a member of the Applied Science and Translation team, she collaborates with internal teams and external networks of scientists, educators, and researchers to infuse developmental science into all aspects of the organization and maximize impact with schools and students. I am speaking to Laura today with my colleague, Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy. I hope you find this interview useful. Hi everyone and welcome to Trauma Informed Education. My name is Dr. Gavin Krishnamurthy and I'm here as always with Dr. Kay Eyre. Hi Kay. Hi Gavin, how are you today? Uh, I'm okay. I'm Good. a bit um, still half asleep I think. It's a bit <laughs> early in the morning. Um, but we're super excited because we're here with uh, Laura Sykes uh, from Turnaround for Children. Hi Laura. Hi, thanks for having me. No worries. Thank you. Um, we've been reading lots of resources from Turnaround for Children for quite a while now, haven't we, Kay? Um, and been very inspired. So we're really excited to hear about the sort of work you do. Uh, Laura, we might jump right into it. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and what got you into working for the organization? Sure. And um, so my background is actually in elementary education. I was a teacher here in Harlem, New York, which I absolutely loved. My students were succeeding academically. Um, they were doing phenomenally well, but really struggling socially and emotionally. And I only saw my students' experiences while they were at school with me, but I also knew that many of them were dealing with a number of challenges outside of those walls. So by trial and error, I found some strategies that worked, um, but knew that I didn't totally understand what was going on with my students, how what they were experiencing outside of school is manifesting in my classroom. And I felt like I needed to build up my own toolbox if I was going to serve them successfully. Um, I knew I wasn't doing enough, but I didn't really know what else to do. So I went back and did my graduate work in the translation of neuroscience research for education. And what really resonated with me most in that program was how trauma and adversity can affect the developing brain. And once I learned about all the science, I thought, 
you know, wow, this explains so much of what I was seeing in my classroom and all teachers would be so empowered by this knowledge. It's exactly what I knew I was missing as a teacher, how to better understand and then support my students through this new lens. And so I went and found an organization that was dedicated to doing just that, which was Turnaround for Children. So that's how I uh, got into this work. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it makes a lot of sense. Um, well, I was just curious about um, the kind of, uh, you know, the moments you had in your own mind uh, from your teaching background, mm-hmm. um, from your study where, you know, if there are a couple of incidences that really popped into your head that kind of really made the links between the science and what you were seeing. Was there anything that you remember um, about what happened there, Laura? Sure. Um, So when I was a teacher, one student particularly sticks out for me. Um, He had a sort of a slew of diagnoses that had been given to him that attempted to explain some of his challenging behaviors, which were he was very inattentive, he was impulsive, he was hyper alert, and would quickly escalate to really extreme behavior, things like screaming and yelling and throwing things and flipping desks. Um, even to the point where we had to send him to a psychiatric unit directly from my classroom because his behavior became so dangerous to himself and to other students. And because nobody really fully understood what was causing that behavior, uh, the reaction was to say, well, you know, we can't serve him here and we, we maybe need to find another setting or another school that can better serve him and that better understands his needs. Mm-hmm. And while I disagreed with that, I didn't really have the solution either because I didn't have the knowledge to understand what was going on. And so looking back, I knew that this student had some kind of trauma history, but I didn't make that direct connection between that history and his learning and his behavior in my classroom because I just didn't have the lens. And I truly believe that if I and my school leaders and other teachers understood how trauma affected learning and behavior, we would have understood him differently and then could, he could have been treated differently and, and better served. So that, that student always sort of lives with me in this work. Yeah, we've always got one one of those students in our minds, I think. Thanks so much, Laura. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about Turnaround for Children and your role in the organization? Sure. Um, so Turnaround for Children is a nonprofit organization that acts as a catalyst for change by raising awareness about and addressing the challenges uh, that affect any school with students experiencing adversity, including trauma. So we develop tools and strategies that are grounded in the science that help to create a safe environment to reduce student stress, uh, to increase engagement and learning and accelerate healthy development and academic achievement. So the way that the organization was actually started was our founder, Dr. Pamela Cantor, um, in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks here in New York City, was brought into a team to help address the impact of trauma on New York City public school students. So she was leading a team um, at Columbia University leading a study there that actually revealed the highest levels of trauma were not among the children who were in those ground zero schools, but actually in the communities here in New York of the deepest poverty, where many children were experiencing that unrelenting adversity. Um, And that team also found that the schools that these children attended were often really feeling ill-equipped to manage the high levels of stress and mental health needs of their students. So she started Turnaround to help schools understand the impact of adversity on learning and behavior and put children on a healthier developmental trajectory so that they can be successful both in school and in their life. So my role in the organization is to bring in that research on trauma and development into the organization to ensure that our work stays really grounded in both the best of what we know from the science and the best of what we know from practice. 
Mm, yeah, no, that sounds excellent. And and it sounds as though uh, the, I'm just getting a sense of the model. So there are people from the organization who go in and train the teachers in the school um, with kind of, uh, you know, I'd imagine curriculum based stuff, but social emotional practices as well. Is that kind of how it works, um, Laura? Yeah, so we actually have a couple of different ways that we work with school partners. We have sort of our most intensive school partners that we have a few folks from our staff in the school, perhaps even several days a week, um, that they work to build so build adult mindsets, but also to set up the systems and structures and practices in the school that we know are going to most support students who have experienced trauma and adversity. Mm-hmm. And then we're also thinking about how we can scale to touch more students. So we're also working with a lot of um, both school leaders and system leaders so that they can bring this knowledge back to more teachers and more mm. students so that we can have a uh, greater reach. Yeah, that would be such an incredible resource just to have someone at a school, I think. That's uh, um, amazing. Um, so f- from doing that work, um, Laura, what is your experience of um, how trauma-informed practice actually adds value to some of the schools that you work with and the teachers you work with? Mm-hmm. So there are sort of two main components in my mind. And the first I've spoken about a little bit already because it was really uh, what drew drew me to this work. So the first part is around mindset. So in schools, what often happens is that kids either are explicitly or in sort of an unnamed way labeled, especially when they're demonstrating these really challenging externalizing behaviors. Um, I already talked a little bit about the one student that I had who was given all of these diagnoses and there was an attempt to sort of put him into this box and we were unable to do that. And if we had understood him differently, he would have been treated differently. So I think building an adult mindset and building this knowledge around what happens to the developing brain gives adults a new lens through which to see students. So they go from saying sort of what's wrong with this child to what has happened or what is happening in this child's life that might be causing these behaviors, which is a much more solutions oriented mindset to have in working with children. Mm. So mindset's the first piece. And then the second piece is around, okay, now you sort of understand what's going on. What do you do about it? So once we have this new mindset, it helps us to prioritize the types of practices that we know are really critical for supporting students who have experienced adversity and frankly, really great for all students. So one example of that, one type of practice that we often bring to our school partners are strategies that just create really calm, safe, predictable, consistent environments. So something as simple as a routine for a student to unpack when they get to school in the morning might not seem like that big of a deal, but for a student who is hyper alert because of their experiences of adversity and trauma, that predictability and consistency allows their brain's stress mechanism to relax and say, I know what's going to happen. I don't have to monitor my surroundings so closely for something to be dangerous for me. So we can put a greater, we know what those strategies are and we can better prioritize them if we understand the importance. So when you sort of combine these adults' new mindsets about trauma and the knowledge and prioritization of practices that best support students, then students in turn have this completely different experience at school, one that is really attuned and responsive to their specific needs. Mm, Yeah, that's so true about um, having the mindsets, but also giving them practical things to hold on to, isn't it? I think at Mm -hmm. times, um, 
you know, especially educators and Kai could probably speak to this as well. Um, I think when you talk a lot about what's happened, I think people can start feeling quite helpless in that because it seems so overwhelming and mm -hmm. daunting to even address it. Um, what have you found kind of work, you know, actually makes the links in terms of teachers coming on board and, or, you know, uh, as opposed to just being, you know, being stuck and feeling really helpless with this. Mm -hmm. uh, Laura, what have you found some of those really uh, key strategies with kind of getting them out and really engaging with that approach? Mm -hmm. So I think that actually one of the most powerful things that we've seen in our work is that going into a school and talking directly with leaders or with teachers about the science of learning and development and specifically the science around adversity and trauma can actually be really validating for teachers in things that they feel like they're already seeing intuitively in their classrooms. They might be having children that are inattentive or impulsive and saying, I know something might be going on at home. I know that that might be affecting their behavior, but I'm just not exactly sure how, and I don't understand sort of the biological mechanisms of how that happened, um, how that's happening. So giving them the information and showing them you know, yes, you are seeing these things and here is why those things are happening can be really validating and make teachers, and at least I know that's how I felt, like, wow, someone has been able to explain this question that I have had and now I understand better what's going on. Um, so this first piece about sort of shifting mindset is actually, I think, the easier piece because it feels common sense in a lot of ways and it makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think where it becomes challenging is that, as we talked about a little bit before, teachers have a lot on their plate and they need to prioritize what they're putting their time and energy into. And to say, you know, here are 10 more things that you need to tack yeah. on to your already very long list can be a really hard sell. And it's very overwhelming for teachers to take on 10 more things. But if you can say, you know, here are the things that you're already doing, here are the things that you're already doing that are supporting these students. And here are ways you can integrate these practices into what you're already doing, then that's the key. We try to create practices and systems and structures that can be integrated into teachers' days or that can be integrated into the school culture so it doesn't feel like another thing that they have to figure out or another thing that they have to fit into their schedule. Yeah, that's great. I'm sure people listening are very glad that that's the case with the program. Um, Kay, did you have any questions for Laura at this stage? Just a practical one, Laura. How many schools do you service? Like at, at any given time, how many schools are you able to support? Mm -hmm. um, so it will depend on the level of support that we're giving. So at our most intensive school partnerships, we serve anywhere between maybe two and six schools where we're spending a lot of time every single week really getting on the ground with our teachers and leaders to understand what's better going on. Um, and then when we're thinking about our scaled work, it can be a much broader reach. So right now we are working to train all of the kindergarten through eighth grade principals in the Washington DC public school system, um, in addition to a couple of other charter networks and some schools here in New York. So it can be, we can reach a lot more students and leaders when we have sort of that um, more scaled model. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. So talking about how trauma affects our brain, Laura, what do you think might be two or three things that um, educators need to know about um, how that happens and how it impacts students in terms of their learning and just, just well-being really at school? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So everything that we bring to schools and talk about is based on the idea that the brain is malleable to experience throughout a lifetime. So our environments and our relationship really shape our developing brains. And that can be both an opportunity and it can be a vulnerability. So one of the things that we say over and over again to our school partners is that adversity doesn't just happen to children. It happens inside their brains and bodies through the biological mechanism of stress. So when we're talking about trauma or adversity, what we're really talking about is the body's stress response. So stress activates the healthy production of adrenaline and cortisol, which triggers the body's fight or flight response, which we've all heard of. Um, but when chronic stress, stress that's happening over and over again every single day without an adult there that's helping to buffer that stress for a child happens, the brain is creating an overproduction of these hormones. And because development is malleable to our experiences, that consistent and overwhelming presence of these hormones can fundamentally change the way a child's brain and body develops. So in the body, there's increased inflammation that can lead to negative health outcomes, like a higher risk for heart disease or cancer. And in the brain, the neural architecture or the parts of the brain that are most vulnerable to those stress hormones are the same parts of the brain that can really affect learning and behavior. So there are three main brain regions that we talk a lot about. The first is the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that's triggering that fight or flight response, and it becomes hyper alert. The second is the hippocampus, which is responsible for your brain's learning and memory. So it has a harder time remembering things and a harder time uh, holding on to new learnings. And the third is the prefrontal cortex, or the part of your brain that helps you to regulate your thoughts and emotions and behaviors. So you can imagine that when these structures become primed to be on high alert for danger and to react quickly, that's good when you need to protect yourself, but it also changes a child's ability to regulate their emotions and their attention and their behavior and to learn and remember, which are all key components of academic success. So we both recognize that there's a very real impact of adversity on the developing brain, but we also understand the potential of all children to succeed if we can create the types of positive developmental experiences where they can thrive. And research shows us that the same children who are the most sensitive to that adversity and are most likely to have the most negative outcomes when they're exposed to adversity are the same children who are most likely to have the most positive outcomes if they're given a safe, calm, predictable, and supportive environment. So we can both recognize that real impact and that vulnerability, but also the opportunity to create developmental experiences for our children in our schools that can really put them on the path towards healthy development, um, both in school and beyond. Yeah, I love that you talk about how it's an opportunity as well. I think people often um, look at the science of this and see it in a very reductionist way and mm -hmm. in a very kind of black and white way, but it's actually telling us a lot about um, how we intervene and when we intervene and the kind of subtleties in kind of implementing strategies as well, isn't it? Um, what are your thoughts about that, Laura? Because you're in quite a unique position where you, you've got some of that neuroscience background, but you see the kind of practical implementation of this in schools. What do you yeah. see the challenges of kind of really translating some of that science into daily practice with mm -hmm. educators and teachers? That's a great question. So first, I just want to acknowledge that it is really, really challenging. And there's a statistic 
that it takes, I think, about 17 years for a piece of research to be translated into the classroom. And that's an incredibly long time. And students only get to go to kindergarten once. So we need to get a lot better about getting faster at translating this knowledge uh, so that it's usable for educators. But as you've said, it's, it's really challenging to do. So one of the most uh, challenging pieces of this translation for me is that research doesn't always acknowledge the importance of context or the importance mm. of the environment. And we've talked already so much today about how critical the environment is for children. Mm. So one great example of this is about the marshmallow test. We've mm. all heard about this study. The original marshmallow test that we were familiar with, you know, a child is placed into a room by themselves and told, if you eat this marshmallow, it's the only one you'll get. But if you wait until this experimenter comes back, then you can have two marshmallows. And the findings of that original experiment were extrapolated to mean that children who do not have those self-regulation skills would be less likely to succeed in school and beyond. And those were some pretty uh, significant findings that are often referenced. But unfortunately, what that experiment failed to do was think about the context that those children were in. So there have been a lot of follow-up to the marshmallow test. And one particular study comes to mind um, where they actually do a little bit to manipulate the context and see how that would affect children. So a study that was done um, here, I believe it was the University of Rochester, uh, introduced the child to either a reliable experimenter who showed the child they did what they said they were going to do, they brought back better art supplies when they said they would bring back better art supplies, um, or they got an experimenter that was unreliable who didn't bring back those art supplies or didn't follow through on what they said that they might do. And then they did the marshmallow test. And so the children who learned that the adult was unreliable waited on average only three minutes for their marshmallow, not a very long time. And you might look at that and say, oh, that child doesn't have great self-regulation skills. But the same children, when they were given a reliable adult, waited four times longer for that second marshmallow. So clearly we're seeing, it's not that there's a difference in those children's self-regulation skills, but there is a difference in the context and the difference in the environment that that child was in caused them to actually act differently. Mm. So when we're thinking about translating research into practice, we have to consider, yes, there might be some really important findings in this research study, but how's that gonna translate to the context of our school in real life with real teachers and real students, and how is that still gonna be meaningful? Um, so that's one of the, the challenges that we grapple with. Yeah, that is such powerful stuff. And if people haven't don't know about the marshmallow test, there are lots of videos I think on YouTube yes. with uh, Walter Michelle and, and that little um, uh, adage to the study is so powerful, Laura, because it it tells us about how a lot of those kind of skills um, kind of develop and happen within the context of relationships, really, isn't exactly. it? More than anything, um, and how what a powerful influence that has. Um, on kids, even for something that's, uh, you know, not expensive, it's a relatively time limited test, um, which would be so powerful for teachers, because that really tells them about things like self regulation, about impulse control, and how important a relationship is mm -hmm. uh, within all of that. Um, but so speaking of relationships, what has um, been some of the outcomes that the program's been able to achieve um, in schools, Laura, that you could talk about? Sure. Um, so we, one 
thing that we talk about really often is from 2011 from 2014, Turnaround's partner schools saw a 49% reduction in suspensions and a 42% reduction in severe incidents. So this really speaks to both the school's increased skills to support students and students' increased skills to succeed at school. Uh, that being said, we are really focused on creating healthy developmental experiences for children. And as you can imagine, measuring healthy development can be really challenging. Um, so we have a number of proxies that we look at to better understand if children are in that safe, supportive environment and if they are developing in a healthy way. Things like, are they feeling physically and emotionally safe? Do they have relationships with adults and peers? Do they have self-regulation skills? And so that's something that we are consistently learning about how to best measure, as is the field. So we'll keep you updated on that. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And, and uh, you know, like I said in the beginning, it's really interesting some of the frameworks you guys use around trying to understand, I think, normative development. Um, and because I think that's often a lot of the cases we often talk, and okay, in the program talks about, you know, we know about reading levels and writing levels, but what are the kids' social emotional levels? Um, and, you know, a lot of that's, uh, you know, we, we have some tools to do that, but not necessarily in a great way. Um, that's an incredible stat about the 41%. Can you give us some context to that? Like, it, 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 what have you seen in terms of disciplinary practices that really has shifted with the um, program being uh, introduced, Laura, in terms of suspensions and exclusions? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so I can give you one anecdote about how we're yeah. really shifting the way that we're addressing student challenging behavior. So there was one third grader in one of our partner schools, so I'm gonna call Derek for the sake of the story. Um, and on a good day when Derek was calm, he was charming, he did really well academically, he had great relationships with adults and peers, um, but Unfortunately, there was sort of a repeated pattern of challenging behavior going on. So Derek was very easily triggered inside the classroom. His teacher didn't feel like she had the tools to address that. So she would often call her school's leadership team who would take him out into the hallway, which would escalate him even more. And he would be kicking and screaming and throwing things. Um, and then eventually, even when they got him to calm down, he would shut down, not speak to anyone. And then they would, there would be a consequence for his escalation. So this happened over and over again. The cycle was continuing. Derek was missing a lot of academic time. Um, it was destabilizing to him in his day and also destabilizing to the other students that were in the classroom and in the school. And then we learned that there were actually a number of things going on with Derek outside of school. So he was not getting a lot of consistency at home. There was a lot of unpredictability in his environment. Um, he was sometimes living at home, sometimes living with relatives, and there was just not a lot of stability in his life. And that was manifesting when he was coming to school and being easily triggered by the things going on in his classroom. So in partnership with, this, with the school that we are working with, uh, they referred Derek to their student support team. So this is one of the structures that we would establish in partnership with a school. It's a team of people, including teacher leaders and mental health professionals and instructional experts that help to problem solve and to uh, create interventions for students who may need some more individualized support. So when Derek was referred, they decided to try a really simple, really straightforward intervention called non-contingent relationship building time, which sounds very complicated, but really all it means is five minutes every single day, no matter what, 
the teacher engages with that student in student-directed play. And it has to be led by the child. It has to happen regardless of if that child had an incident that day or not, or whatever that teacher has going on in their schedule, because we're showing the child you have a consistent and predictable adult in your life who you can trust and you can feel safe with. And so after implementing that very simple, short intervention, we started to see big changes with Derek. And the key was it broke the cycle of that behavior because adults were no longer waiting for an incident to happen and being reactive, but doing something very simple and proactive that addressed, we know that there's something going on with Derek and we're going to be proactive in building a relationship and making him feel supported here. And just with something that simple, he was able to be much more successful in his classroom uh, without receiving tier three mental health supports. So I think that example really illustrates how, while there's not a one size fits all, sometimes it can be about just understanding what's going on with that child um, and doing some really simple things to make that child feel like they're supported at school. And it can make a really big difference to go from disciplining to supporting. Yeah, I love that strategy. Um, Non-contingent relationship building time. (laughs) Um, And and it's something I think Kai could probably speak to this. We all kind of intuitively know, isn't it? It's about, you know, we talk about banking time with the kids. and Mm -hmm. Very similar. um, yeah, and, and, and it's just relationship building time. But I think you saw lose sight of that when there's so much going on at school and you're just trying to go from one thing to another, I think. Um, Kai, I'll get you to jump in in a minute. But, Laura, my question would be often, you know, what your experience was about implementing, you know, a strategy like that. If you had any kind of pushback around um teachers who saw their roles quite kind of narrow or um, sort of said, you know, I'm not here to babysit these kids. I'm here to teach them or, um, and so what was your experience with that? And I I was curious about what the influence of the leadership was in terms of trying to manage that sort of pushback on those Mm -hmm. strategies. Mm -hmm. Sure. So a couple of things, I think the first is, as we've already talked about a lot, if we don't take the time to first build a lens and build a mindset around why these practices are so critical and how they actually can have an impact, then it's a lot harder for the teacher to say, I can even take those five minutes that I could be doing something else that's important with and dedicate it to this particular strategy for this particular student. Um, So I think that first we need to really build an understanding and a knowledge about why these things are important and how they really can pay off even just five minutes a day. Mm. And then I can speak from my own experience. I know that as a teacher, um, as we've said, you have a lot on your plate. And Mm. oftentimes when there's a student who you have been sort of struggling with all year long and you think five minutes a day, that's not going to solve all these problems. There are some deep seated things going on and I need something. This child needs to see a mental health specialist. This Mm. child needs to see a psychiatrist. You know, I can't solve this problem. I'm not the school psychiatrist. Um, And I've been told that as a teacher, you know, Laura, you're not the school psychologist. But I think that from everything we understand about healthy development, it doesn't necessarily need to be an extremely complicated intervention. So I think for teachers that are a little bit more reluctant, uh, seeing that that actually can make an impact maybe with another child in another classroom can be really important to show that those five precious minutes every day are actually worth the investment of that time. Um, and I know, again, speaking from experience, it can be really challenging to say that this has to happen no matter what, because it can feel like a reward. Mm. But at the same time, we recognize that building that relationship and building that trust and building that consistency is the most critical piece 
So we have to make really clear and help everyone involved to understand that if it's not happening every single day, even if that child did something that morning they may be getting a consequence for, mm-hmm. um, then the purpose of that intervention is not going to come to fruition because it's all about that predictability and consistency. Yeah, that's that's so powerful. Just just even that little piece about how you explained how complex, you know, complex difficulties just need simple but consistent kind of solutions and how the teachers are part of it. It's such a great empowering message, I think, for teachers. Mm-hmm. Or you can you can just make it two minutes a day if you need yeah. to. That's all you have. <laughs> just start with two. Yeah. Yeah. Ray, did you want to jump in and have any questions for Laura? No, no, I'm right. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I was just curious about, um, yeah, I'll ask again about the leadership piece, um, Laura, Mm. what you talked a lot about the teachers being very clear about the rationale, um, for why you kind of engage in these practices. Um, and you, uh, you were referencing before about, you know, empowering the leaders to kind of spread the message as well. Mm. What, what do you see um, their role being with kind of implementing these sort of trauma-informed practices? Sure. Well, thank you for raising that again, because I think you're absolutely right. It is a huge part of what we do is starting with the leaders and making sure we have the buy-in and investment from them and that they build their mindset first. And there are a few reasons why we see that as absolutely critical. Um, First, just as we talk about teachers building trust with students so that students feel like they're safe, we need leaders to build trust with teachers so that teachers feel like I'm safe to actually prioritize things that are not just academic, that are I can dedicate the time in my schedule to do even five minutes a day of something because I know that my leadership is going to support me, even though we might have, you know, an important test coming up or a reading level check coming up. Um, So there's sort of the trust of my leader is going to support me and is going to get behind this intervention. Um, And then the second thing I think with leaders is that we know that in order for any of these initiatives to be sustained, that everyone has to be on the same page and there needs to be systems and structures in place to continue to carry out these practices. So it's really easy to get excited about something um, and say, you know, everyone in the building is going to start doing this. It's going to be so great for students. It's going to be so exciting. But if the leadership hasn't set that practice up to continue in a sustainable way, it just becomes another thing on teacher's plate. And then next week, it'll be something else. And the week after, it'll be something different. Mm. So we have to set up that environment in which the systems and structures are in place in the school to carry out these things. Um, teachers know they're going to have the resources and the time and the support that they need from their leadership teams to make it happen and that it will, their efforts will be worth it because it will continue to happen over the course of the school year or for years to come. Mm, yeah, I'll have to ask just to kind of put it into a bit of a practical sense. Uh, one of the dilemmas we often have is when there's one student who's particularly disruptive and so the principals often got to make that choice between, you know, thinking about the rest of the class and thinking about that one student. Um, And obviously there are lots of kind of workarounds with that in terms of helping that one student. But what would be some of the things that would happen in the program, Laura, if you were to kind of encounter that dilemma and what would be the role of the principal with that? Mm -hmm. 
So the first thing that we do is think about what are the things that we need to proactively put in place in the classroom so that scenario isn't happening quite as often. So we know that there are things that are particularly helpful for students who are experiencing adversity, but that are important and beneficial for all students. So we often work with our schools on very basic things like setting up consistent routines and procedures in all the parts of your day, Um, having shared expectations and rules Mm -hmm. within the classroom that all students help to create and can agree upon, Mm -hmm. Um, having really safe hallway transitions and knowing Mm -hmm. exactly what's going to happen, setting up a community meeting where the class comes together every single day to work on these social and emotional skills. Um, So there are things that we would put in place so that hopefully there isn't arising as much a situation where one child is sort of being escalated because they're not being supported at that fundamental level. But even if those things are in place, as you're saying, that will happen. Mm -hmm. So another thing that we work with teachers on is what are the strategies that you can use inside your classroom when you do see a student that begins to show escalated behavior that you can help to de-escalate them in the moment versus when do you need to call your leader to actually come in and give you some additional support. So again, that sort of takes the burden off of everyone in the school is calling the leadership every time the child's having a challenge because teachers now have things in their toolkit that they can use to support a child to a certain extent. And then if that still isn't working, calling leadership and saying, I need some additional support here in which we would be coaching them and how to coach their teachers and what to do and handle that situation, which is typically de-escalate, get that child into a safe and calm state, and then later think about both is there a consequence that's applicable, but equally as importantly, what skill building do we need to give to that child? What other supports do we need to put in place so we don't continue the cycle and it doesn't happen again tomorrow and next week and next month? Yeah, that's just really excellent. And it, I, I love that piece that you were talking about, you know, working with the principal to then work with the teacher. Because I think I'd imagine the invitations to just jump in and help the teacher <laughs> would be so strong. Um, but you're really building capacity within the school um, for them to take care of themselves and their community. Um, Laura, what do you think we know about neuroscience and the brain that can inform us about how we how educators can take care of themselves and how leaders can take care of teachers because um, this is really tough work and I don't know what it's like for you but I'd love to hear even things that you do for yourself. <laughs> sure so in the same way that we stress affects the developing brain it affects our adult brains too and research shows that teacher stress leads to student stress and vice versa so it's critical that we as you're saying take care of ourselves and our stress just as much as we take care of our student stress so one way that we bring them into schools um, is through mindfulness so that's something that we actually started because we know it has great effects for students but also has really great effects for teachers. So that can be as something as having an app that you use to do some breath awareness during your lunch break, um, doing some mindful walking and stretching, doing reflective writing. Uh, Some schools will even set up mindful listening partners for teachers to come together and say, here are the challenges that I'm going through. I'm going to share them with you and the other person practices just sort of listening and helping them to work through some of those stresses that are going on um, in their classroom. So I would say it's a lot of parallel processes, those same things that we need for students, we need for ourselves because this is challenging work and we can't do it if we don't take care of ourselves and our own stress. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, Thank you so much for this. Um, It's been really useful and I'm sure people listening will get a lot out of it. Um, So I I was just wondering what you were currently curious about with your work uh, or what 
kind of challenges you feel like you're pondering about? Yeah, well, there is just so much that we don't yet know about the brain. And so I and the rest of the field have so many questions about neuroscience the research is just catching up to. Um, but really the fundamental question that I sort of alluded to is what works for whom and in what context? And typical measurement in education or psychology and related fields is done at the group level and not at the individual level. So a reading program might test itself out and say, okay, overall, this was the average growth that children made using our reading program. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not how we want to measure the success of our work because it tells us so little about the development of individual children. Mm -hmm. So we really want to know if we, in partnership with our schools, put in place these mindsets and these systems and structures and practices that we believe will really support children, which children are being affected, how are they being affected, and what needs to be in place to actually make that happen. And if we can better understand that, then we can work to better serve each and every child, especially those who need it the most. Yeah, there's a lot of literature, and I guess there's a lot of talk around personalized learning, but it, it, it you know, I made that link just as you were talking that mm -hmm. personalized learning comes down to social emotional things too, isn't it? And it's, uh, we're not quite as sophisticated in understanding kind of individual needs and, well, even measuring it really at a mm -hmm. group level. Um, so that would be fantastic if you could figure that out for us. That would be great. Yeah, we're working <laughs> on it. <laughs> Kai, did you have any um, final comments or um, questions for Laura? No, other than to say it's been wonderful listening and it's very um, reaffirming to the things that we're trying to do here. And uh, probably I was, I guess, thinking back now, I was just one, I guess, one curious little question was in general, do your um, leadership teams in your schools, do they tend to stay in the one school for a certain number of years or do they, uh, often our problem is we implement positive behaviour support and we, we get all of those um, systems in place and we mm -hmm. have a leader who is passionate and gives their teachers permission to focus on um, social emotional development um, and then that leadership team has moved on. Mm -hmm. So the teachers don't get a choice, the community doesn't get a choice, the department moves the leadership team on or they place the principal and what we call a, the deputy principal, they put them together. So it's not the choice of the principal who their deputy is. The department says you two people are going to work together in this school. And that's mm -hmm. the sort of thing that derails a lot of really good work that our leadership teams do. So I just wondered if they tend to stay, have the opportunity to stay for a certain period of time to sort of make a bigger difference as possible. Yeah, so it definitely varies depending on the region and the school um, and whether we're the type of school system that we're working with. But it sure. certainly is a challenge that even if a leader stays for some amount of time, they're not going to stay forever. So no. one of the things that we prioritize doing with our leaders is actually creating, one of the first things we do is create what we call a team for school initiatives, which is a distributed leadership team. So it's not just the principal or just the principal and the assistant principal, but it's going to be the people who are doing student support, like the school psychologist or um, social worker. It's going to be teacher leaders, deans, academic coaches, and of course the principal, so that there is a wide variety of people who are carrying these initiatives forward. So even if one or two people leave, um, those things are sustainable and continue yeah. to live in the school. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Laura. 
That's yeah. excellent. So Laura, just as we're finishing up, are there any resources or links to uh, Turnaround for Children that you think people should be aware of? Yeah, so you can visit our website at turnaroundusa.org. There are some great resources there if you'd like to learn more. Uh, a few specific things would be our Building Blocks for Learning paper, which is a developmental framework. There are two academic papers about the science of learning and development that we had a big hand in publishing that we're really excited about and would love for you to read. And there are also some really great videos of our founder, Dr. Pam Cantor, going into more depth about the science of adversity and more on development if you're interested. Yeah, the, the website's excellent. Lots of um, video and um, reading material there. And we can put up those links if you wanted to send those through. Laura. Um, thank you so much. Um, this has been really useful. We really appreciate um, the work you do and Pamela does and the organization does. Um, we'd love to keep in touch. I think we might be down that way um, early next year, but we'll keep in touch. <laughs> and we'd love to pop in and say hello. Um, Great. It was so great to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. And, it, you know, it's so great to hear about all the work happening, not just here, but all around the world to yeah. support students. So thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. Thank Take care. That was our interview with Laura Sykes. To get access to the links and resources mentioned in the interview, please visit www.tipbs.com. If you are enjoying listening to our show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Your ratings make all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.